What's up, people? Welcome to this episode of the By the Hood podcast or webcast. I don't know how you're consuming this content. This is episode 16, and we have another special episode for you. Um, we have a very special guest, man. Um, I was just telling him before we got on air, I don't know too many people in his profession uh, or people that look like me in his profession. But before we get into that, um, I want to introduce my partner, Core. Core, how you doing, good brother? What's going on, Jim? How you feeling? Oh, man, I can't complain. Ain't nobody listening, man. But listen, man, this is going to be another special episode, man. You know, one of the things we like to do is highlight people in our community, uh, people building businesses, people doing work in the community. This brother um, has his own consulting firm, but outside of that, he's a, a, a black mathematician. I don't know. I don't know about you, Corey. How many black mathematicians you know? You know a lot. I know a couple, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I'm. I'm at. I'm stopping at like three. Yeah, shout out to uh, you know, Mr. Harper from back in the day. You know, Mr. Harper was uh, right back at Central. Like he, he wasn't no joke, man. So shout out to Mr. Harper. But um, yeah, this Mr. brother Harper gave me a job at one point. Oh, nice. I didn't yeah. even know that. Didn't even know that. Didn't even know that. But you know, Mr. Harper was at Central with me and Core. But nonetheless, man, we got our brother Akil Parker in, and um, just to give a little brief introduction, he's an adjunct professor at a. Uh, both LaSalle and um, just starting at Cheney as well. Uh, But he also owns his own consultant firm. It's All This Math LLC. So we're going to talk to him a little bit about his story, um, how he got into math. And um, I know he's also um, an avid reader, which is something we talk about here a lot is books. So we're going to get into that discussion a little bit. But Brother Akil, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm glad to be on here with you two members. Man, thanks for your time, man. We appreciate it. Yeah, I should have been on sooner, but I just had to, you know, get my life together. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. No doubt, man. But listen, man, um, I I find your story interesting because, like I said, uh, one of the things about our show is we have people from all walks of life that do all amazing things. And we get a lot of um, feedback from people saying, wow, I didn't know people looked at me, you know, that look like me do this or do that. And I'm pretty sure that'll be a response to this um, being a mathematician. Right. Um, and I'm pretty sure there's a lot of brothers and sisters out there who are mathematicians. I just don't know them personally. But yeah. so give us a little bit about your background. Um, how did you get into that field and, and, and how did you fall in love with math? Background, uh, I guess I would start with just, um, so I was, I was born in New York. I traveled around a lot, not a lot, a few places. Born in New York, grew up in Baltimore, though. So basically Baltimore raised me for the most part. Um, Went to Morgan State. Well, went to Morehouse for one year, then transferred to Morgan State, which is in Baltimore. Got my degree in finance from Morgan State. Um, I dropped out of college, though. So I was a college dropout for two years. Um, I went back, though, because I realized, you know, at that point, I was just chasing money. And I realized that I'd be able to make more money with a college degree than without it. You know, even though at that time, I think I was like 21, 20, 20, 21. The money I was making seemed cool, but I was glad that I, I saw you know, more money in my future with, with having a degree. So um, ended up going back to Morgan State, graduated from there in December 2003. I ended up moving to Philadelphia, um, mainly because of a girl that I had fell in love with back in the day. Um, uh, yeah, we ended up, she ended up being the, the mother of my, my oldest son, Nassim. So um, that was, yeah, that was way back in the day. But um, he just turned 14 yesterday. Oh, congratulations. Congratulations. He's getting old. He's getting old. But um, I I was a finance major. I got a degree in finance from Morgan. I ended up working for the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Worked for them for a year, but it wasn't like the kind of sexy finance investment stuff that I wanted to do, that I like studied in undergrad. It was more on the accounting audit side, uh, which I really wasn't prepared for, just, just to keep it 100. 
and I kind of was in there. I came in, I was hired as a trainee, but I wasn't being trained. And, you know, so I kind of was just kind of winging it. And, you know, I wasn't really, I wasn't really doing well. So it wasn't long. And I didn't like the environment. I really didn't like the people I was working with anyway. Um, but, you know, it was one of those so-called good government jobs, you know, that people tell you to get. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it wasn't even on, a, on the GS level, because, you know, the most government jobs, you had GS whatever, GS3, GS10, whatever. Mm-hmm. It was a different pay grade. It was a different whole scale. So it was like they was on like a CG level. So it was like a higher higher grade altogether um, with these these and these government corporations. So I only worked with them for like a year. So I was there for a year. I left. Um, I had aspirations of going to graduate school, maybe getting a master's in economics. I really didn't know what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Just to be honest, um, I knew I had a uh, knew I had a baby on the way though, so I knew I had to do something. Um, I didn't want to sit around and you know allow uh, his mother to take care of him because she was a she was already a school district teacher herself. But I was like, nah, I was I was raised a little different, you know, not to just let a let a woman take care of my child. Understood. Um, you know, so anyway, so I ended up doing. Um, I got down with this agency. I was riding the sub one day. I saw an advertisement for this company that hired like substitute teachers and tutors. So I called them, met up with them. I started doing um, substitute teaching. Um, I didn't want to do substitute teaching. I wanted to do the tutoring, but she didn't have a lot of openness for tutoring. So, you know, but she had mostly substitute teaching opportunities. So I did a couple of them, like one day here, one day there. And some of like the local charters, this is back in like 2005, like early 05. Um, then she came up with this opportunity at Mariana Brissetti when it used to be at Kensington and Lehigh, where Sankofa Freedom Academy Charter is located right now, okay. that building, um, the geometry teacher went out on leave and they needed a long-term substitute for his position. So it was like a Thursday when she told me about it. Well, Wednesday when she told me about it, I went in on Thursday and, you know, I kind of saw the lay of the land. And then she told me like, you know, go in Thursday and Friday. If you want to stay, call me over the weekend, let me know if you don't then I'll find somebody else for it. So I kind of did a little bit of, I guess, as they say, soul searching, thought mm-hmm. about it over the weekend, you know, chill. And I just, you know, I made a decision back then. I said, you know, um, I, it's possible I could become a good teacher one day if I, you know, take this opportunity seriously. So I stayed with it, um, stayed there for the rest of the school year. It was like the whole fourth quarter. So I stayed, it was a 10th grade geometry um, position. They had like, like four different sections of geometry, the teacher that had left. So it kind of went okay, made a lot of mistakes, learned some things, but it was kind of weird because, you know, as a substitute, you know, you really don't have that much power and influence. Well, I mean, you do have, you don't realize the power and influence you have. Yeah. Um, so I kind of was just there as a babysitter by uh, being a substitute, but at the same time, since I got to come back every single day, I couldn't play it like a typical substitute. So, you know, I kind of had to play it like a, like an actual teacher. Okay. You know, I didn't really know a curriculum. I didn't, I just, I was just going off of, you know, when I was in 10th grade and I took, actually, no, when I was in ninth grade and I took geometry, just some of the things that I remembered, you know, um, just from then. So you kind of, so you kind of fell into the, the mathematics thing. It was, it was, you know, that wasn't, I guess your original aspirations, you fell into it. So at what point did you fall in love with teaching? Did I fall in love with teaching? Um, it wasn't until I really started reading. Um, Cause you know, you, so I was only a sub, a long-term sub at that point. And then in the summertime, you know, because I, I think a lot of people when they get into teaching, I mean, it's just like how, you know, America is set up and, and built off of, you know, like monopoly capitalism. So it kind of mm-hmm. motivates us to hustle. And like whatever you're doing, you, you kind of make it into a hustle. Um, 
And a lot of people, not everybody, but some people like myself, when I got into TV, it was a hustle. So, you know, cause you, you know, you work your, you know, uh, Monday through Friday, you find out about the after school program. Okay. How much is that? Okay. Another $25 an hour. Okay, cool. Okay. Y'all got the Saturday program. Okay, cool. How much is that? $30 an hour. Okay. Bet I'll be there. Um, and it's kind of like a hustle. I mean, you care about the youth, but a lot of times you don't really, your main focus is getting the money. Like you're just trying to get to the bag. Like that's really what it is. Um, at that point, I didn't love teaching. I liked getting a check and I liked kind of some of the, like the culture of being in school. Cause I like, I was, I, when I was in school, I always went to like the competitive schools, like the magnet programs and whatnot. So I, I always liked school. Mm-hmm. Like school was my thing. Like school was my main like um, uh, uh, environment for socializing. Um, so I was always comfortable in school. I wasn't one of the people that like hated school and would cut school all the time. Like that was never me. So when I became a teacher, it kind of was like, oh, you know, I'm back in a place where I'm comfortable at, yeah. you know, and I'm getting paid, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how it was at, at first, but it wasn't until like, you know, I started realizing that like, like, wow, like, you know, when I, when I got to end up getting a full-time position and I was official and, you know, I had paperwork. Uh, when I started teaching at World Communications Charter, that was that following fall. I went in there because what I did was that following fall, I uh, I heard somebody told me that charter schools are more lenient. And if you don't have like a degree or, well, not a degree, not a, not that you don't have a degree. I had a degree. But if you don't have a teaching certificate, they're more likely to give you an opportunity. So I sent my resume to every charter school, every charter school in the city, just about. And World Communications was one of the schools that called me in for an interview. I went down there and, and interviewed, you know, the, uh, the sister that interviewed me, she was like, well, we can keep you on as a possible um, building substitute. I was like, okay, cool. I get home. As soon as I get home, I get a phone call. She's like, she, called, she lets me know. She says, well, there's been a change. The 11th grade Algebra 2 teacher, her husband just got a job in Connecticut. So she's leaving next week. Would you like to come back and take her position over? So I was like, hell yeah. You know, so but that's, that was, that's when I got my first like full time actual teaching position. But again, that's when I, you know, first started teaching and I, it was kind of a hustle. Um, but a couple years in, I realized that, you know, like these young boys, like they're asking me questions and they're expecting me to have answers. So, <laughs> then, so then I'm like, well, damn, I don't want to tell them the wrong answers because they think I know they think I know what I'm talking about. You know, mm-hmm. so when I was like, well, shit, I, I got to make sure I know what I'm talking about. So then I started like reading more vigorously. And then around the same time, like, you know, I started like, you know, kind of, you know, getting down with other people that was like really into the knowledge and like studying books about our history and science and okay. things of that nature, history and whatnot. So, and it kind of helped with the conversations that I ended up having with the students. So okay. a couple years in, that's when I like really... Like, I would, I would just get more and more serious every year. And then I started to have, like, a love for it um, just because I just, you know, I just I just like interacting with the youth and just mm-hmm. uh, kind of, I think part of it, too, is I guess I kind of get to, I guess, un, not undo the mistakes that I made when I was their age, but they can benefit from those mistakes because it's like I kind of know how this movie ends in some situations, and I get to kind of deal with, a lot of those situations that I experienced kind of, kind of vicariously through them. Cause then I can, I think back and I say, well, you know, I was in the same exact situation and I made this move, but I should have made that move. So then I just let the young brothers or even the young sisters sometimes, I let them know, like, you know, when I was in this situation, this is what I did. And this was the outcome. 
So you, you know, I can't tell you what, I can't make you do anything, but I'm just letting you know, this was my experience. So hopefully you benefit from it. Cause I don't want you to go, I don't want you to have that outcome, you know, if it's going to be harmful for you. So yeah. that's kind of, I guess that's kind of like when I, I felt, I love teaching, I started to love teaching like later on. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's always about, it's always about the, the relationships you develop with the students. Cause a lot of times I don't get along with the adults. You know, a lot of times. Like, it's been some times when I've got along with oh, some of my colleagues. You're telling my story. You're telling my story. <laughs> well, that's yeah, one of that, my whole story. That's kind of, even even with us on the finance side, that's kind of how we ended up doing summer camps for kids because uh, we were going to the communities and try to, you know, help the people, what have you. And we saw, like, the follow-through. Um, yeah. And, you know, it was it was disappointing a lot of times. Now, every once in a while, you'll find somebody who, like, you know, you can help and, uh, you know, they'll change your life. But we said, well, you know, I guess... It harkens back to the uh, the old Frederick Douglass quote about um you know um not repairing broken men but uh right, right. build strong yeah. children <laughs> build strong children you gotta, so you have fix broken men exactly exactly yeah. so um yeah but you mentioned how reading was something that kind of like you know changed your life and I know you're an avid reader now um you you're a huge proponent of reading and um you know I've even stolen your hashtag read or die but <laughs> but all <laughs> means yeah but um. Yeah. So did you grow up as someone who likes who who loved to read, I should say, or did that is that something else that developed later on in life? That developed later on. I didn't I didn't really like reading when I was young. Um I mean I, I read if I had to because of school. And I wish that I wish that I had been a more voracious reader when I was younger, because then a lot of things I, I even though when you read books at different points in your life, they mean different things to you. Absolutely. Based upon your own life experience. You know, yes, like indeed. I read the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was twenty one. I wish I had read it earlier, but I read it when I was 21 and I need to read it again. So when I, I'm 39 now, I know that when I read it straight through, like if I read it this year, it's going to be a totally different book. You know what I'm saying? Yes, it is. That's one but, of those books. Um, yeah. that, I wish that's, I had been. that specific book I've read like probably once every like three years. And you're right. Every time you read it, it's something different. Um, you become you a, a different person. You get a different appreciation for it, too. But, yeah. you know, it's funny because you said you didn't like to read when you were younger. And I'm, I'm someone like I, I read at least one book a week and have done so for years. Um. But with that being said, I also didn't grow up loving reading until I had a teacher, well, you know, a black teacher by the name of Dr. Cooper, who um, took time to, to kind of like break books down in a different way. So what he would do is explain to me how books could relate to, you know, whatever I was into at the time, whether that was athletics or hip hop or whatever. But until someone took the time to do that, I didn't really have an appreciation for books. But a lot of times I think that's because of what they're making us read. Right. Yeah. And when I was in school, I didn't realize um, at the time that there were so many books on so many different topics about like things that I have an interest in, whether it is black history or whether it is sports, you can, there's millions of books on like, you know, sports biographies. Like, but I didn't, at the times, like, you know, right. you're forced to read Huckleberry Finn and all these other, um, and all these Shakespeare books and no yeah. disrespect to Shakespeare, yeah. but I can't really no, like that. All just, disrespect. That's <laughs> Okay, well, all disrespect to Shakespeare, all disrespect to Shakespeare, but I, 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 I'm pretty sure a lot of our um a lot a lot of our kids don't like reading because they're forced to try to like you know force Shakespeare down their throat. Right, and I think I think part of it too. So I I used to be kind of you know on the on the same type of wave like you know like why we got to why we got to read these white books and whatnot. But what I realized I think it wasn't until years later in my um my teaching career um I had some students that in their English class they had to read Beowulf. So I was like, man, why these black kids read Beowulf? But then it kind of like occurred to me that I think in terms of, I guess if we look, uh, and I don't want to get too too far off topic, but it's it's all related. Actually, it's it's not off topic actually because 
if we look at our condition here as black people in America and just in the world, actually, not just America, but, you know, we are at war. We've been at war. And it really becomes an issue of studying your enemy and knowing your enemy. So mm-hmm. if we're talking about, as, as you say, uh, one of your terms, um, the, I'm going to borrow from you, the, the Yakubians. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, in terms of knowing their, their culture and knowing their behavior and knowing their thinking and their ideology, then once I realized that, I was like, okay, these books, are, these books do have some value. But as long as you're looking at them through that lens, okay. not at, but a lot of times, see, here's, here's the problem with, with the neo-colonial Eurocentric schools. They want us to read those books so we can try to emulate and assimilate and try to be honorary white yep. people. That's why they want us to read Shakespeare. They want us to read um, Beowulf. And they want us to read like the Red Badge of Courage and the Great Gatsby and all that. So we can say, okay, look, they can try to make us think that this is real humanity. This is real culture. What y'all have and what your ancestors had either doesn't exist or it's nothing compared to this. But if you look at if you if you're culturally grounded and you already understand that, well, my people, my people have a culture. It's valid. And, you know, it's it's thorough. Our, our culture is thorough. And then you go at it like, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm studying y'all just the same way y'all study us. And I'm not studying y'all as a as a means of trying to idolize and emulate y'all. I'm studying y'all because I want to understand what y'all next move is going to be because I don't trust y'all. So I need to be ahead of the game and I also need to be able to educate my own children because I want to I love them and I want to pr- be able to protect them. So I want to be able to impart that, that, that knowledge to them and also just any young people that you just come in contact with. You just want to be able to put them on. Um, yeah, that's a whole that's, different, that's a whole different way of looking at it. Like, um, that, that's, that's, that's a lot of game right there. Cause, yeah. um, I don't think a majority of people look at it that way. Right. Like I bought, I bought, uh, I got like three or four books by, uh, what's his name? Um, speaking of the autobiography of Malcolm X, you remember the part where he tells the joke, about from uh, Barry Goldwater, the senator from Arizona. Yeah, yeah. I bought some of his books. I got some of his books. I'm like, I need. To, I want to know what y'all talking about. Um, you know, and it's it's interesting because a lot of times some of those like so called conservative ideas. Again, I think this is I know I know Corey hates the term white supremacy, but well, I'll say Eurocentrism. In okay. terms, as a function of <clears throat> as a consequence of Eurocentrism, you know, some some white people will stand up and say, okay, this is how we think you know, our family, the family should be or, or whatever the neighborhood, the community should be. Yeah. And you say, and then we look at, some of us look at it like, nah. So we go to, we go to the liberal side of things just because some white people that call themselves conservatives stood up and said it. But a lot of times like, nah, a lot of that stuff is just decent in terms of how the community should be. And some of that stuff, Marcus Garvey might've said. So we can't just say, that like, you know, because Barry Gold, what his book is talking about, we need our own schools. We need to educate our children. We no, that, that's, that's yeah, absolutely right. You when, you start to, when you start to break down and read a lot of um, the works of, uh, of Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam, um, if, you, if you really think about it, a lot of that's conservative thought, right? Yeah. It, but, you, but no one ever like... But it, have, but it doesn't, but a lot, a lot of the mistake a lot of us, a lot of our people do is we, we assign ownership of those ideas to when yep. a lot of times it's just good sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's just good sense. No like, matter like, who's saying it, it just it makes sense no matter who says it. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of our people said it first anyway. Yes. They just were yep. able to market it more strongly and more aggressively. So we Which we, we always talking about the marketing of the ideas because a lot of the ideas that these Eurocentric authors bring out, they're from are they, they come from our culture right they 
their ideal their idealism comes from our culture and what they do is they bastardize it to the point where we don't even recognize it and so we have to recognize that that's what happened to our to our ideology and so when when you start talking about this i know i like we telling the exact same story like i i i've I've lived almost the exact same existence as far as teaching and not hating and hating the system and falling in love with teaching as you know as i was doing it so i understand exactly where you're coming from with the and the, with the reading part of it too i don't read as voraciously as y'all i get i get into about one book a month mm-hmm. um not not a week but y'all you know what i mean i understand what it means to understand history and, yeah. and understand where all of these ideas come from so i appreciate that you you brought that up yeah, but it's funny. I don't, I don't read. I don't read one a week though. I'm not. I'm not that. I'm not that. Uh, that voracious. You know what I mean? I, I, I kind of. I'm a little slower. Like, <laughs> well, it's funny for me. For me, that happened because um, I, I literally fell in love with reading later in life. Like I, I, like I said, I had a teacher that taught me how to break down books because before him, I would read books to pass tests. But yeah, yeah. he's the one that um, he's the one that taught me, which is interesting now that I think about it, because both of you brothers have an educational background. And, a lot of times when you're as a student, when you have someone that looks like you, that means a whole lot. And that's probably something else we can talk about. But, um, but the fact is once he taught me how to read, I felt, you know, and it's funny because even when he taught me how to read, I think that um, the book we were reading at the time, um, you know, was one of their books too, uh, Lord of the Rings. Okay. But, but, <laughs> but, but at the time though, when he started breaking it down and, 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 and taught me how to like, look at the information and not just read for what it says, but what does this mean to you? Right. right. Yeah. So you read this, what does that mean to you? And once I, once that had that little eye opening, but then as I got older in life and I start realizing like, there's so many books out there that I've missed or, or that actually I can relate to, or you know what, one of the books that I read, and it's going to sound funny, but it's absolutely true. And after I read this book, I just went on like a tear it was actually the coldest winter ever. Okay. Right? Okay. Uh, when I read The Coldest Winter Ever, I said, whoa, you can write this kind of stuff? Like, this is what I see outside. Like, because I, 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 I read that. I still need to read that. I have a copy, but I just, I never, I never read it. And I, I, that's one of those books that I feel bad about. I feel like there are parts of the, 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 the true black culture that I've missed out on because I never, you know, delved into that information. I wasn't exposed to that. But I got, I, need, I still need to read that. Because what it made me realize is you always have like Urban Lit, you have the Donald Goins and I was and all that, but hers was like a, a drama, but just yeah. that happened, you know, within our community. But it was like the people, I knew the people as I was reading this. And I, right. that book, I just wanted to tear reading all kinds of books. But, you know, and it's funny because people had this thing about like, you know, quote unquote street lit or whatever. But I think a lot of people miss that. That's what gets people into reading. Right. You right. read and something thing, like that. Yeah. And the thing is like, like, like I got, I got a lot of love for uh, Sister Soldier. Like, matter of fact, I, um, I don't know how, maybe 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, I found her album on eBay, on okay. cassette. I remember I that. It, and I have it. Like, I think it's in my car right now. Like, just the cassette tape. And I used to listen to it over and over again. She's you know about I mean? that life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah like, she's and then definitely I thought, about it. You check on YouTube, like from that, remember that, uh, that Phil Donahue episode? Yeah, yep. absolutely. Going in, going yep. in the West and all of them, all of them guys, man. Um, but yeah, but like you said, like that, that book, so that book kind of activated you. One of the things I was talking to my, uh, one of my homeboys about that I realized was like, we talk about reading and we talk about promoting literacy, but, but it gets, you know, like with anything, the devil's in the details. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you got to be careful with 
how you introduce people to reading because okay. yep like okay so all of us on here we probably would say okay well um the souls of black folk is an important text you know absolutely the, absolutely but however i don't think what i realize is you can't just like a person that don't read at all and may not be um as familiar with that type on that on that i guess like i don't want to say intellectual level but on that reading level mm -hmm. you can't give them that book because that book they may be like what the fuck is this <laughs> no you're right you're right but see to me that, that that's it I, I disagree a little bit because I read this Souls of Black Folks in seventh grade, so it's not about it's, it's nah, about. But that's you, and I, and I, but here's what I'm saying. But that to me is why that book to me is, will always be important to me. Um, the coldest winter ever is because there's certain references and things she makes in there that makes me want to go read other things. So without the coldest winter ever, I don't uh, go back and read Up from Slavery. I don't read Souls of Black Folks. I, I don't go back and read, you know, um, the Miseducation of Negro. Like. That yeah. book was kind of like a gateway to like, oh, what's this thing she's referencing? Like, to go read these other things. But if not hey, for me hey. reading that and understanding that, okay, she's drawn from these different things. I don't go back and study text, which most people would consider, you know, important text. But it was that yeah. book. And I can I always tell people that it was that book, which people kind of like misinterpret. And they call it, you know, quote unquote, street lit. But she was, it was so much more in that text than that. And that's why to me, she's the best at that kind of writing. She's at a different level than... You know, I've read, I've read some terrible books, too, that are quote-unquote street lit, where it's like, you know, Johnny walks down the street and shoots Bobby. Like, no, nah, hers is a lot deeper than that. Like, the story she's telling and things that she weaves through the story is on another level, but that's just the soldier, though. Like, everybody's not just the soldier. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know, Corey. Maybe it's just me. I don't, I don't think I could have handled um, Du Bois uh, back in seventh, when I was in seventh grade. I don't know. I probably would have got frustrated with it. You know what I mean? But my, I, but my I, point, I, so even, even if it's not that book, my point, I think you, you get my point is that yeah. I think we have to be careful, like which books, um, you know, we, we introduce we introduce people to it because it's yeah. like you might have to build up, you know. Yeah. To, you know, you got to build calluses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like I remember, um, like Nas was, you know, one of my favorite rappers, and I remember, you know, I kind of uh, one one thing when one of his interviews, he was talking about like the books that he was he was reading. He said he liked he liked to read a lot of biographies and autobiographies, and I always I took that to heart. So then when I like I guess started reading, I always I always try to get the I, I was I would try to be real hyped to try to get the biographies and the autobiographies just about the people because I like those because then you kind of get to see like you get perspective, real, yeah, the perspective and the real humanity of them, and it's like wow, okay, so he was like. You know, it's, it's like, okay, cool. Like, I'm sitting in the classroom, and it's like 2010, and I got young brothers in here that's, like, coming to school high and, you know, fucked up, and they got a lot going on. They're dealing with trauma and all types of stuff. But then I'm reading this book about, you know, QEP Newton or whoever or somebody from the 1930s, and it's like they was going through the same thing. You know what yep. I mean? Yep. They just didn't have iPhones. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> the condition of our people was the same. And then, and then I think I, I used that as like a, a inroads to try to introduce reading to the young people. Cause I'm, cause they like, I think the way, the way reading is marketed in schools, it's like this boring thing, this, this thing that is, is of no value. And it's like, you're going to end up reading books about people that are to, so unrelated to your existence. That's like, why would I, why would I want to learn about this person? But then I'm going to put you on. I'll let you know, like, no, nah, this person was a lot like you actually like the same issues you go through when you on your way to school, on your way home, what you worry about, what you, what makes you happy, what makes you sad. This person 
had those experiences too. Y'all are very similar. And he, he or she even wrote about it and yeah. talked all about it and everything, you know? But, but, and, and Corey, to your point though, I, I, I was assigned those texts too. So, you know, I went to Ivy Leaf, which was, we had all kinds, we, those yeah. are books we were assigned. But at the same time, what I recognized later in life is, like I was saying earlier, I read to pass tests. You know what I mean? Not yeah. until not until I read her book later and went back to revisit those texts, which I probably don't go back and revisit them, did I have a full appreciation for what they were actually I, saying? I get it. No, y'all 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 not wrong. I I I'm just for me, I I just think that you just you 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 introduce reading at whatever level the person is on, like whatever reading level, not even um not even specifically text, but more about you know can they understand the words that are being written in the book? Because some people write at different levels. You know what I mean? You have some people that write at, you know, doctorate level, and you have some people, like like a sister soldier, who would write on a level where more people could understand what's going on. So I'm thinking more in that context of introduction. Like, my introduction to reading was comics. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? I can easily understand every word that was that was being written, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And then I built on that to, you know, read, I went from comics to reading the newspaper to then reading for information. And, you know what I mean? So I built on my skills over time. Yeah. So, it, you know, that's more of what I was talking about. Not, I, I, I don't say high subject matter. I'm saying it's more about reading level than subject matter. I think, it, I think it's interest level too. Cause some of the stuff it's like the, the text could be real complex but if you really want to understand what this person is talking about, then that'll motivate you. Because, I mean, even if you got to sit there with a dictionary next to you, like, damn, what does this word mean? And you'll, like, you'll do it. Because if your interest level is there, like if you got an old head that will put you onto the book and say, yo, brother, you should read this. And you respect him or respect her. And then, and then you take them seriously. It's like, all right, well, because you said it, I'm going to read it. And I'm going to fight. Even if I got to fight my way through it. Yeah. Fight, I'm gonna just fight my way through it. Matter of fact, you mentioned comics. Um, Dr. Greg Carr, the chair of the African American Studies Department down at Howard, he's one of the people that influenced me to try to become a more voracious reader, like in my in my teaching career, and kind of let me know like how that would help my teaching. And he said he said that uh, you know, that was it, comic books was one of his introductions as as a youngin, you know, to reading and developing his vocabulary. Because like yep. I never, you know, I know. I've heard I've heard this from a lot of people. I never really read comics like that, but a lot of people have told me that it's it's very advanced vocabulary. In yeah, it is. yeah. I've read comics too, but the funny thing is, I actually probably read more comics as an adult than even when I was a child. Because when you go back and read comics, you recognize like, yo, they're dealing with heavy stuff in some of these books. Yeah, I, I, a lot of kids probably not even understanding what they're like. It's 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 a lot of um, a lot of subjects that they uh that they talk about or or, or topics that they're approaching that most people don't even talk about and maybe they get away with it because of the cartoon aspect of it yep that's you know exactly what I mean? why <laughs> but but if you actually go there's some heavy stuff um even in even one of the newer books like so the newest black panther run um was written by tanahasi coates and um you know but is is not for play play i should say like as they say like it's it's, it's serious <laughs> it's serious topics being discussed but they're using that that medium which i think is a powerful medium but but that's the thing though when when you're in um school a lot of times the way you just broke that down that's the first you're the first person I heard break that down like that in terms of being able to study study the other side you know what i mean yeah. so you're the first person I've heard break it down that way but 
there's also no balance there. I, I, I've, I've talked to like, you know, um, nephews and little cousins who, who like, why am I reading this? Like, they don't even read anything that relates to them at all. Um, you know what I mean? So I, I think that the way reading is introduced is, is can be powerful. It can turn people off. Cause like you said, it's not even marketed well, right? So it's marketed as a boring thing. And if it's marketed as a boring thing and you're reading a bunch of books with no one that looks like you, no right. story, no stories you can relate to. And then you're leaving classroom and you're going home and you're dealing with the trauma, the PTSD, PTSD of where you're coming from. You're like, but there's books about that. There's, there's things that you can relate yeah. to, but that's not what they're being assigned and that's not what they're being taught. Right. right. So culturally relevant material is the thing, though, and which is another important reason why we need people like Akil to be in our classrooms. You know, we need people who want to bring that culturally relevant aspect to our children. You know, what I mean, like a, a lot of people don't even realize that it's not none of it, none of it is culturally relevant to us. Um, and so they just teach it as it's presented. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas a brother like like brother Akil, he said, you know, he breaks it down. He lets them know, you know what I mean? This is about what, uh, you know, those characters do relate to you, but they relate to you in this way. And he, and he makes it culturally relevant for the student. And so in anything that we're doing when we're talking about black people, especially, it has to be culturally relevant to us. Yeah. Because we, like you said, we don't have that kind of balance in school. That's why I don't like Shakespeare. All those arts and vows and and, and, and flowery language that don't pertain. Like I'm, a, I'm a kid that grew up on rap and hip hop. So when you start talking about art and vow, I start, I start channeling out. Right. I don't care what the story is about. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and a lot know, of that. that's how I felt when I was seven. You know, you know, fourteen, sixteen, seventeen years old. You want to have no arts and no vows, like. Can you give me a hip hop version of, of Shakespeare <laughs> that I can understand? And you know, th that that stuff came along later. But when we was in high school, none of that stuff was you know relevant to us. Like, come on, man, I don't care how many. Look, Romeo got killed because he was with the wrong chick. If you would have just said it like that, I would have understood it better. The families had beef, and right. Romeo was he was you know what I mean. He kept sneaking <laughs> to their crib. They had a, they rumbled, and then he died right. in the rumble. Like I understand that. But when you start telling me, you know, you know, you know, Romeo was violating. Romeo was violating because she was supposed. Yeah. To, she was off limits. Yeah, like you was in the wrong place, messing with the wrong chick. If you say it like that, I yeah. understand it completely. Easily is not hard to is not hard to digest. But when you start putting all those arts and dials and start talking about light breaking through windows and all kinds of crazy, I don't want to hear that. I think to me though, that's one of the more powerful things about like the Malcolm book is that. Is is like, it's not. He's not using unnecessary unnecessary ten dollar words. It's it's very direct. Um, it's philosophy as well as a biography. Yeah. So I, I think that's why a lot a lot of people it's once plain. they read, once you read that book, because I, I know a lot of brothers that that's the book right there that kind of like you know like whoa like you know. And, say and plain. That's the activator. That's the activator. Yeah, that's definitely activated for a lot of people, and but I think that's why because. Like you read that book and he's dealing with like, you know, heavy topics and telling his story, but it's like real direct. There's not a lot of, not a lot of pontificating or, or uh, unnecessary $10 words, I said. Yeah. And when we talk about culturally relevant um, pedagogy or curriculum, a couple of things come to mind. The one thing is that um, it, it sounds like a new innovation because I think now it's getting a lot of traction, but the reality is under Eurocentrism, they, they've had culturally relevant curriculum like, you know, forever. <laughs> but, yep. 
it's just relevant to their culture. So mm-hmm. now, you know, we saying like in the in the absence of because in our own independent schools, it wouldn't even be an issue because everything would be relevant to the children that are going. They wouldn't have to work because our textbooks, you know, um, all the assignments, um, every, everything would just be would be relevant to the the end the end the recipient the end user, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, since we're in their space, we got to figure out ways to navigate away. Um, the other thing in terms of like with teaching math, a lot of people. One thing, another concept that I that I I challenge is when people, and a lot of people have have said this, and still do that math is like neutral or like apolitical. They say the mm-hmm. same thing about science, like the STEM field. Like oh, None, nothing's apolitical. Exactly, nothing is. Because even if, because I always say like, um, if I got to sit in a math class and you give me the textbook and you tell me about the formulas and the theorems and you open up the book, you show me pictures of the people that the formulas and the theorems are named after. If they're all white men, that's a political message, yep. political idea. Because what you're telling me, what you're communicating to me without even explicitly telling, telling it to me, so I guess you're implicitly telling me is that this ain't for black people. Like that, like that book by Lisa Delpit called uh, Multiplication is for White People. You know, that's the, yep. t- that's the title of one of her books, you know, because she was like, she was doing her like practicum or something and she was observing some students in a classroom. I forget what state she was in, but she was like the young, the young black boy was like, um, you know, we do, we do addition and subtraction, you know, but the multiplication and division, that's harder. That's for white people. Like they do that. <laughs> wow. And that's, that's being communicated to our young, young people in these, in these, in these neo-colonial schools. Um, so yeah, so that, and that's part of, that brings me to like what all this math is about. So, I mean, all this math, it's a business. Um, it's, it's a private tutoring service. It's, a, it's an educational consulting company. But, I mean, it's a lot of things. But really, it's, you know, me and my wife have been building it, you know, over the past year. And it's really a movement because what I realize is that mathematics in this modern era has never seriously been marketed to black people. And yeah, yeah. a lot of things have been marketed to black people. Music has been marketed to us. Designer clothes have been marketed to us. Um, Popeye's chicken sandwiches have been marketed to us. Sports, NBA, NFL, all of those things are heavily marketed to us. But mathematics has never been something that's really been marketed to us. I mean, you've had like these like STEM programs or, you know, within a school, it's like, okay, Okay, y'all, have a week. Y'all, might, y'all might be good at math. So here, y'all come over here. Y'all, y'all not like the rest of the quote unquote, you know, bad, the rest of the niggas, quote unquote. Uh-huh. So y'all yeah. come over here. But even with that, so it's like one of those situations where even you, you, it gives the impression of winning, but you still lose. Because like I was the type of student where mathematics for me, I was good at math pretty much throughout all of my formal schooling from K to 12. But mathematics was a tool of assimilation. It was kind of mm. like, oh, you good at this, but this ain't really your people thing anyway. So really, it's like it's like honorary whiteness. It's like, oh, you could do the math, cool, but this ain't really for black people. So you wanted the good Negroes. Yeah, you ain't like them. Exceptional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you not like the rest of them. So, but when you and a lot of people um, do well at math, even the, even the young sisters and brothers that excel at mathematics and may, may go on to get master's degrees or become math teachers or become PhDs in mathematics or go into engineering and science and everything, if they still have that mindset, then 
They losing. They, yeah, they losing. They still they're no use to us, and that's why a lot of times we can't count on them to help us build infrastructure. It's like these and these people would be really brilliant they because be brilliant. they assimilated because the math assimilated them into a world of whiteness. Yeah, yeah, and I and I was talking to a brother. Uh, you might have seen him on on Facebook. He has a he has a he, he's ba- he's based down in Atlanta. Him and his wife they have they run the uh, the Aya Institute. Wakaza Mazimoyo is the brother's name. And he said something to me, and it just like hit me like a ton of bricks one day. And it was like, he was like, man, we got to take math back. Yeah, because it's ours. I was like, oh shit. But like the way you said it, I was like, it sounded real basic, but it was real profound. Because, and then I started thinking about the economic implications of that. Because, so let's take like the the STEM um, initiatives and all the attention that's been given to STEM. So, the STEM initiatives still don't really, they're not meant to really change anything fundamentally because what it amounts to is, okay, we're going to teach some more black kids math to excel in math, but then they're still going to go work for the white people. They're still going to go work for the Asian people. They're still mm-hmm. going to go work for the Arabs. So fundamentally, nothing has changed. And I think that the reason that that even makes sense to a lot of our children is because if math is the foundation of STEM, and, and, I, and if you say, okay, well, I want to be an automotive engineer. I want to design cars. I, I want to, you know, um, and if I know mathematics is the foundation of that, if I believe that mathematics is the domain of some other people, then it makes sense that even if I excel to the highest level within mathematics, if it's somebody else's domain, then why would I, why would I think that we or me and my people should start our own car company to go to war with Nissan or yeah. go to war with Toyota? Because in terms of my thinking and the way I was educated, I don't think that this skill is a, I understand it's a valuable skill, but I don't think it's mine. I think it's somebody else's. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think that plays like some type of subliminal. I mean, like, then, and then you combine that, life. you combine that with what we're told um, at a very young age. Like I see people to this day, um, you know, you're going to do well in school and you're going to get out of here and make something of yourself. Right. So why do we got to get out of here to make something of ourselves? <laughs> so you're, you're planning in their head at that moment that, you know... Um, in you're telling them they're not nothing right now. You're saying right now you're not anything and you got to get out of here to become right. something. And your people right. aren't anything and you have to get away from them. So the further you are away from them, the better off you are. So that you, you combine that with what you just said. And I mean, and you see it. You see people all the time like, man, you know, I, I just got to get out of here. I have to get out, quote unquote, get out. It's right. never about improving conditions of, of, of the, the overall community. It's about getting away from that community. Right. Um, and the, question, the question is always, where, you know, Malcolm brought this up. I and mean, a lot of people have brought this up. Like, where, where are you going to? Like, what is your destination? Mm-hmm. Like, once you get out, where do you go? And like, where, where will you go and be comfortable? And is it necessarily better in this place that you think you're going to end up at? Yeah. You know what I mean? But and I don't I even think people recognize when they say certain things to, uh, to our children, like, what they're actually saying, like, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean, like, uh, yeah. What does yeah. that really mean? Like when you really say that, you know, you tell somebody, like, you know, you gotta get, you gotta get out the hood. You know what I mean, like. Um, so yeah, yeah, like you just everything, everything about the people in the environment is becomes a detriment to you, and 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 you're included in that detriment as long as you're here, instead yeah. of saying that if you know if you and your brother and your sister whoever they may be, improve the conditions of your environment, then it no longer will look like the environment that it is. Instead of saying, you know, be the change and make the change, they say, you got to get out of here 
and then you know then let the people that that want to live like that just die in that you know in that environment yeah in that space and in that environment and that's ridiculous but then, but, but then but then somebody else comes in and, and and buys your neighborhood and you turn around and say oh man like but you never saw the value in it though right right that's exactly. it and you know, um, and it's funny because one thing that I learned from uh, brother James Tompkins, he said, he said it doesn't take much to be a revolutionary. You can just go outside and pick up your trash, <laughs> and that was like so simple. Um, but to me, it was still profound. I was like, yeah, you're right, because if you just go outside and pick up your trash, that's a revolutionary act in some in, in, in a weird way, right? So you have to see value in in your people and also um your environment because when you don't, and and, and this is like you said, everything's tied together. So that's tied in with how we look at math. You look at those skills right. as not being yours. You look at the community as not being yours, but something you have to get away from. You know, so then our best and brightest, they have nothing to come back to. So they have, you know, because a lot of it's our fault, you know, and, and, our, and like we, we well, don't have any infrastructure. Yeah, we don't have any infrastructure built up, but at the end of the day, that's, that's something that, you know, we're all trying to do. That's what all of us here are collectively trying to do. Um, so with all this math, what is the future for all this math as, as you move forward with, with building this, this movement? So several things. So one thing is going to be some like type of mathematics, SAT prep for like, you know, groups of, you know, teenagers. And another thing I do want to say for anybody that's listening, a lot of people start SAT prep in high school with their children, you know, even ninth grade. And I would even recommend starting it at middle school, you know, start, start early on, you know, as a supplement to whatever type of preparation um, they're already getting. Um, it's not too, it's because that, that's, that's the main advantage that, you know, because we look at like, you know, the people that perform well on these tests, a lot of it is just the luxury of time. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like investing, like, you know what I mean? Like when you, when you're investing, you have time on your side, you have the luxury to be more aggressive with your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, but if somebody is like, you know, it's like, damn, I'm, I'm, I'm 55. You know what I mean? I can't really <laughs> be aggressive as I could have been when I was 25, you know, because I don't um, so when you're in high school, you're in 11th grade and you're like, okay, I'm trying to go to college in two years. You know, I got to cram, I got to go hard. And you know, it's, you know, you're a teenager, you know, you might need a job, you know, cause life might, you know, you might be required to pay your own cell phone bill or, you know, pay your class dues on your own. So, um, when you're younger, you don't have as many responsibilities. So, you know, in terms of like essay, whether it's SAT prep or just general, just mathematical preparation, because I mean, in the system that we live in now, the way things are set up, um, a lot of the careers that will be available, you know, I tell people all the time, like we can't plan for like, you know, the careers that are available today. We got to plan for, it's like, it's like a quarterback throws a football, throws a pass. He don't, he doesn't aim to put the ball where the receiver is when the, when the ball is hiked, he aims those ball where the receiver is going to end up at. So mm -hmm. you got to be thinking like, well, what jobs or opportunities will be available 20 years from now, 30 years from now, not necessarily just right now, right now. And in terms of preparing ourselves for that, like those mathematical skills should be developed. Those um, science, science skills should be developed. I mean, literature and language arts is always going to be important because you have to know how to communicate and you have to not, not only communicate verbally, but communicate in the written word, you know, you know, in a written form, you gotta, you gotta be able to do that. Um, and again, it takes us back to the reading because, you know, good writers are good readers because that's where you get your example of how you're not to say that you have to, exactly adopt another person's writing style but you just get a lot of examples of okay this is good writing kind of like you know the best rappers who did they study like they emulated they, someone they studied, they studied other great people and then they became great 
and then they might have used their style to help to influence their own style. Uh, let, me ask, let me ask you a question because you brought up the SAT. What is your opinion on like standardized tests? Um, my opinion on standardized tests is I think at this point it's a necessary evil. Um, I think that they may not be as I, I the test. Well, let me say this: it's a, it's a hoop that we have to jump through. And when I've done SAT prep in the past, one thing I try to let people know about the socio-political um, uh, aspects of it, so they'll understand what they're getting themselves into. It's not a, it's not a test of inclusion. It's not a test to say, oh, well, you know, you you know, it's it's an excuse. It's a reason. It's a it's a bona fide and reason form- to exclude formalized reason to exclude you because if you don't get this certain score, either I'm not going to give you any scholarship money, or I'm just not going to accept you at all. And this is a this is a uh, just a, ra- a justifiable reason for you not to have access to this space. So you can, and it's really all just part of social engineering. Because then, if you don't, if you deny people access to college, um, and in this system it says, okay, you need a degree to uh, earn a certain amount of resources on a biweekly or annual basis, then I can kind of structure the the society to maintain a permanent underclass. I can, you know, kind of play around. I can, I can manipulate how many members will be within the so-called middle class. Um, I, we can just limit people's opportunities. Um, because if, if the school is supposed to prepare you for tests like that, and you know the schools are definitely not preparing people for tests like that, then, and, then, and then maybe their parents don't have the ability, their parents or their guardians or their community doesn't have the ability to, to prepare them for that, then, you know, it's, it, they're going to be excluded, you know, and things are going to be much more difficult for them down the line in terms of them having access to to resources you know the resources that the society has 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 available to it mm-hmm. um you know but a lot a lot of people that so the people that do have the resources they they're doing the sat prep like early on i, I think i think there's there's been a lot of also in terms of just standardized tests in general there's a lot of conversation around like people being anti-standardized tests and of course i don't like standardized tests but my position is more so like let's just Let's just like train our children to, if it's a necessary evil, let's just train our children how to deal with them, how to get a high, get as high a score possible on it, just get it out the way. Let's let's train our children to render this test irrelevant. Okay. You know what I mean? Like like whether it's the whether it's the SAT, the ACT, whether it's the Keystone. Uh, well, the Keystones don't actually well, quote unquote, they don't count per se. Um, so I guess that's just another hustle because uh, somebody's still getting paid to print all those tests. Yeah, come yeah. Up with those, those questions, and somebody's getting paid to grade them, even though they don't really. Uh, well, at this point, every year they keep saying that next year they're gonna uh, be a, a requirement for graduation, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, ever since they replaced the PSSA in in uh, in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. but you know it's all political games and you know yeah, it's all politics. But you know, another question I want to ask you because you're someone who went to multiple HBCUs and now um, you're yeah. getting ready to start teaching at one. Um, What's your opinion on the importance of HBCUs in 2019 and, and, and moving forward? All right. This is, this is one of my favorite questions. So, um, points of HBCUs. I think HBCUs, I will say this, HBCUs are not a panacea. HBCUs are far from perfect. Um, HBCUs were not established with the idea of liberating us. However, I do think that HBCUs provide a space, generally speaking, provide the most adequate or sufficient space possible for us to create maroon spaces where we can do some organizing to try to do some, some serious nation building. 
Um, now, of course, that's not to say that if you go to a HWCU, uh, as my man says, historically white college or university, um, <laughs> that you can't work toward nation building because a lot of our people historically have went to the, the white schools and, and worked toward nation building. And honestly, it's a lot of people that have went to the white schools that's been more, way more down for the cause than some of these Negroes that go to HBCUs. Um, you know, and that's, that's something, you know, when, when Kwame Ture got, got to Howard and I think what, 19, either 60 or, or 61, that's one of the first things he noticed. It was like, you know, they, they, these people, they just trying to get chicks and show off their sports cars. That's what, that's where a lot of our black bourgeoisie comes from. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So the thing is, is like, I mean, they're, they're, they're caveats. You know what I mean? Like, and I'll, I'll be honest, like, I, I, I'm very, I'm very introspective and self-reflective. When I went to Morgan, I was a bourgeois Negro. You know, I mean, I, I went to Morehouse for my freshman year. And the main reason I went to Morehouse was because, you know, kind of like this, you know, I went, well, I, went to, I went to a high school in Baltimore, Baltimore Polytechnic Institute, or Poly. It's kind of similar to, uh, like, this, it was like the central of Baltimore. Okay. Um, except the percentage of blacks was much higher than it is is the central. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it's kind of like, so you go to that high school and you already walk around Baltimore like your shit don't stink. Okay. So I knew Morehouse was one of those, you know, I always heard the the stories about being a Morehouse man and, you know, what that means and everything. And, you know, the, the, how the sister's going to give you love and give you play and all that type of stuff. <laughs> that's, that's really it. It's like, I'm going to be the shit just yeah. because I'm attached to this institution. This institution is going to render me it, one of the elites and I'm going to be better at least in the in the eye of the, of the community I'm gonna be seen as better than other people yeah that was yeah. my mentality that's why you I gotta to figure play. out which community though like yeah but you know what though that's why a lot of us go to college in general <laughs> right but, so I, under, but I understand yeah but I understand that's perspective too like uh, you know um but that's how Morehouse is, is marketed you know so it's funny how a lot of our conversation is revolving around how things are marketed, right? Yeah. Because that's, that's, that's how, that's how, you know, marketing is part of our environment that we don't talk about a lot, but is a constant part of our environment. Everything that we see and that we hear is something marketing to us about what we should be doing, right? right. Because, you know, only 5% of what we do is controlled by the conscious mind. So, yeah. it's, you know, I mean, the world is being marketed to us subconsciously all the time. Yeah. And so we got to be very careful about our environments. And like you were saying, you know, and, and not looking at things as a panacea and, and, and knowing that yeah. everything is being marketed to us will help in, in understanding um, and solving a lot of these problems that we're talking about. Right, right. Because I mean, because, you know, I, and, and, I, and I recognize kind of, I guess, the growth and development on my part, because I would always, I would say, looking back, when I graduated from Morgan State, that was, it was 2003. I would say that at that point, my mental, my outlook was my degree was mine. It was my degree. I was on it like, you know, I worked hard. I studied. I stayed up all night. I took these tests. I wrote these papers. But when I graduated from Lincoln, you know, uh, you know, almost what feels like a lifetime later in 2015, my degree belonged to the community because my degree was going to be used. So my degree from Morgan was just meant for me to just secure the bag, just to get money and kind of just, I mean, my, my dream, <laughs> my, I had a simple dream. My dream when I graduated from college was to have two cars. I wanted a, I wanted a, bucket. <laughs> it, I wanted a bucket to drive to work every day during the week. And I wanted a, a little luxury car to pull out on the weekends. 
it's amazing. It's amazing in retrospect. But it's amazing in retrospect, like, you know, how, how, how crazy. I had the 92 Honda Accord that I had in, got my last year of college. I, I drove that uh, back and forth to the FDIC down in Claymont, Delaware, right off, right off of 95, uh, right across the street from the Home Depot in the uh, – the uh the liquor joint. What's the what's the what's the big liquor joint? Uh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I know you're talking like grocery store, the, the same yeah. liquor spot, yeah. whatever. Um and I drove that Monday through Friday, and then I would come in for work on Friday. I would hit the streets Friday night, Saturdays. I I had the 96 Acura RL. And it was clean. I got it was 04 when I got it. So it was already eight years old, but when I bought it, it only had forty thousand miles on it. It was eight years old. It was clean. <laughs> that was that was that's all I cared about. That's really all I cared about back then. That, that's hilarious. At that point in my life, that's really all I cared about. Just bourgeois Negro shit. That's, yeah, that's yeah, I yeah. I, I, and it's funny how, um, you know, like I said a lot, and that wasn't any disrespect because I'm a huge supporter of HBCUs. I went to Lincoln, um, but I, I recognize that too. But that's also that's another beauty. Of, the beauty, the beautiful, beautiful thing about going to an HBCU for me, at least, was um, the, the understanding that we're not monolithic people, right? Right. So, so right. on Lincoln's campus, we had the the black bourgeoisie. Then we had like the street cats, and then you had like the athletes. Like these right, are, right. but these are all brothers and sisters. But it's like you you can see the difference right there. The spiritual cats, the Christian cats. You know what I'm saying? Um, the militant brothers, like, you know what I mean? Like these, that's all part of like culture at an HBCU is um, all those various groups. Yeah. Um, so that's why, so that's why when the white schools, and again, back to marketing, like Corey was saying, like when they try to play this game about, um, you know, in all their brochures, they're like, they're kind of pushing this whole diversity thing. Like, you know, and I, I can't, if I had a dollar for every person that told me in high school, like, nah, I'm not going to an HBCU because I want to, I need some diversity. You know what I mean? Like the world ain't ain't just black people, so I need to like. Well, actually, you're gonna like. There's so much diversity within our community, and we get to HBC. It's gonna be brothers from the from the islands, brothers from the continent, yeah. it's be brothers from every brothers and sisters from everywhere, and even even within um within the, within the, this nation, within the United States. You know, my I mean, there's a lot of things that are universal that connect us, but you know, sisters and brothers from California from Baltimore, from D.C., from Miami, mm-hmm. from Chicago, from Houston. Like, we're very much the same, but at the same time, we got differences. So there's, yeah. like, diversity that we can, we, we can pull from, we can, we can gain appreciation for. It was, a brother when, it was a brother when I was in Lincoln that was from, like, Pittsburgh. And I used to laugh because, like, yo, we're in the same state, but I don't know, his, co- his culture yeah. was completely different. I'm like, yo. Right. But, I mean, but that, that's one of the things. It was a brother from California, but, but you're right. Like, you get to see all these different um, – you know, um, cultures, cultures within our community. And uh, to me, that was a beautiful thing. Um, you know, so I always, I always wondered like, how you felt about the HBCUs. All right, so moving forward, though, you, you, you know, all this math is something that you're building out for the community. Um, and we talked about your love for books. So let's get into specific books uh, before we get out of here. I want to know, and I know, you, I know you've read books for days. You've read all kinds of books. But if you can narrow it down to maybe five books that you would say changed your life, I just want to see if I can, you know, I want to add this to our list and also have our listeners maybe look at these books. If you could give me a couple books that changed your life, what would those right, books so, be? So this, is, this is one of them right here. Black Power by Kwame Ture and Charles V. Hamilton. Um, okay. This definitely changed me. Um, but this was like, you know, just, just being introduced to Kwame Ture. Well, I guess reintroduced. I was reintroduced to him, I guess, in the, 
the late, the, the early, what, maybe like 07, 08. Um, I was first introduced to him um, through hip hop on uh, Boogie Down Productions' Edutainment album. Came out in 1990 when he was on all the interludes. You know what no. I mean? It's amazing how many like authors and um and people throughout Black history I learned of um through through BDP Akaris. When I was telling someone the other day, I remember the first time I heard the song "You Must Learn." Oh and yeah. I, like, I like looked up everybody Yo. in the jaw. Like I'm like <laughs> I did the yeah. same thing. Yo, I'm I did like, the I'm exact like, same thing. What? Like who is this? <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is always funny, right? Because you know the, the critics of hip hop, and you always say like if hip hop has the ability yeah. to like you know um lead us one way, it could always lead us the other way too because I, rem- I vividly remember hearing You Must Learn and, you know, I'm like, who is Madam C.J. Walker? Like, who, who is, you know, Benjamin right, Banneker? Right. Like, you know, you, so you can start to do that. And back then, like, you had to get the encyclopedia and some of our folks weren't mentioned. So then you had to, like, you know, go do yeah. further research. And but the um, was decent. And the beat was decent, so yeah. it wasn't like uh, I don't really want to listen to this. You know what I mean? Like it was like a it was a decent beat. So you actually wanted to listen Man, to the song. Listen, that's when hip hop had balance. It oh, had yeah. balance because it was plenty of gangster stuff out there. You know what I mean? Because you know we we had our NWAs and our Ice Ts and, and I mean KRS One made, made the Criminal Minded album. You know yeah, I mean? listen, Even it was gangster stuff on both coasts. But what I'm saying is, but you also had your X-Clans and your, right. your KRS-1s and your Poor Righteous Teachers and, you right, know what I mean? Right. With funky beats that you could still listen to. Brand and, new. And you, brand new, public enemy. You know what I mean? Like, you had right. all kinds of sister soldier. Yeah, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? But, like, you know, it, go, it goes back to the overall theme is, is marketing, right? So, so yeah. it's being marketed to us. But, but anyway, you said Kwame Ture, you actually learned through, through BDP. That's, that's, that's dope right there that's, itself, yeah. but... So, so yeah, black, his book, Black Power, he co-authored with Charles Hamilton. Um, actually, rest in peace to, uh, well, rest in peace to Kwame Ture, um, but rest in peace to Toni Morrison, who was his uh, English professor at Howard. And then she also ended up editing this book when they came out with it. You know what I'm saying? When they was about to drop it, so she actually ended up editing it. Um, Dope piece of history. Yeah. Uh, Jamil Alameen, formerly known as H. Rap Brown, his autobiography, Die, Nigga, Die, that changed me because his, I liked him because I like I liked what I read in that book because, the way he his political analysis, it was so like, he he made it plain kind of like how how Malcolm did like Mal, I think Malcolm influenced a lot of these guys that came into in the Black Power movement, um it's it's clear you know I mean even Kwame Ture talks about it in his autobiography Ready for Revolution, but uh, but uh you know H rap so H rap Brown's Die Nigga Die, that's another book um damn it's hard to. It's hard to point out specific, but I know right now I'm reading uh, Amos Wilson, The Falsification. It was just, this is long overdue. I should have been read this, but The Falsification of African Consciousness. This is, this right here is a page turn. I know we usually say like fictional novels are page turners, but this is a page turner with just like all the jewels in it. And just, cause this, this, this book is composed of two lectures that he gave, one from 91 and one from 93. And then another one is just a written essay that's chapter three, just an essay that he wrote that he put in here too. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's current. Like everything, it just explains just, you know, just, just a lot of things. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like just a lot of things. And especially like when you, when you, you spend a lot of time on, you know, if you're on social media and you hear like some of the opinions that people have and mm-hmm. like, okay, like, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, you almost, <laughs> almost like, I mean, and, and granted, like, you know, so not to sound, I guess not to sound arrogant because, we all need to refine our analysis, and there are certain positions that I hold right now 
in 2019 that in 2029 I may not hold because of subsequent study and, and reading. But a lot of things are just very basic and very fun. Like, you should be like, bro, like, you just, you just haven't read. You know what I'm saying? And then a lot of times it's like, yo, I get it because – before I had been exposed to this information, I thought that same dumb shit that you think right now. I yeah. get it. Like, but, you know, to me, that, that, and that, and that, you know, going back to Malcolm, to me, that's what makes him such a, such a, like, hero of mine, is, is the fact that, and one of the things I learned from, from his book is how he was able to get more information and then make a turn and say, no, what I thought before was wrong, but, but he did it multiple times in his life. Yeah. The more information he got, he became a different person, right? Yeah. And I and I know a lot of times, um, you know, there's is a quote, it's a quote from the wire, uh, from Slim Charles when he talks about, you know, sometimes if it's a lie, you gotta fight on that lie, right? I call that the uh the Slim Charles theory. When you see someone <laughs> when you when you see someone they, on that hill. Yeah, they know they're wrong, but like I already I already said this, so I can't turn away from what I once said, you know, they be Slim Charles in, right? So it's like he was able to get information and be like, look. I know I may sound hypocritical, but now with this information, I believe this now. Or, or, right. Yeah, I got know. new information. You change. You supposed to change your mind with new information. But right. that, but that's that. They know how courageous that is, specifically in that time. That that the courage to do that, because people still can't do that in 2019. They can't right. get new information. Mean, you know, you talk about like politicians or, or, or what's going on in our current political climate. It's like people feel like, yo, I back this person. Uh, you know, or. You know, not to even give an opinion, but the whole idea of the whole Jay-Z argument versus Kaepernick, right? People love Jay-Z, so I'm going to die on that. I know people that I know people that I know that feel like, you know, um, what he's doing is wrong. And, and, you know, but the fact of the matter is they're going they're going to slim Charles it because that's that's their guy. There's there's this equation. There's this equation. It's the equation reads is this um, cult of personality. And I'm not totally against cult of personality because cult of personality can be helpful at times. But mm-hmm. cult, the cult of personality mixed with, plus the lack of reading equals a whole lot of confusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's, one, it's, it's one thing. It's one thing if you know if you know better, but you like, nah, I know better, but that's for him no matter what. Man, what do you do? I'm gonna still ride for him. Yeah. But a lot of people are like, you know, because I think because what what happens that's why if you notice like in some of my posts online, I don't even really like, I don't really target him. I don't really I try not to target individuals. What I've been trying to do more so is look at the like a ideology. I, look at the exactly the ideology that undergirds that position that people have, and I want to go straight to the ideology because mm-hmm. a lot of times because again, cult of personality. If you make if you attack the individual. Then it's gonna people are gonna make it about the individual. Yeah. And even if it's Jay Z, like Jay Z is not that important. He's only following a, a blueprint, so to speak, that has been laid out way before him. Like he's not the first black person to do what he's doing now. I mean, he's trying to get his money. I mean, yeah. that's it. But if I just, I mean, I, I, I study neo-colonialism, and I have to study it a lot more. But I've studied enough of it to know, you know, that that. This is, I mean, like you have like, you know, a dominant group in a neo-colonial situation. You have to have members of the oppressed class <clears throat> seem as though they're making inroads and as it give the impression that, you know, that we all can be equal when that's never, Marketing. that's never the goal. Yeah, you said it's more marketing. marketing. 
More marketing. Yeah, exactly. More marketing. Yeah, yeah. That's you know, and, it is. And, and, and the funny thing is, I was, and, and, and you're right. I wasn't even making like, and the funny thing is, I stayed away from even giving an opinion on that because to me, I sit back and I just, to me, the, the psychology is interesting to me. To see people's reactions, people are so passionate about it. And when people ask me my opinion, because yeah, I, 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 I was never even, I wasn't personally, I was never even like riding hard for Kaepernick anyway. Because my thing is like, you know, fuck the NFL. Like, let's if you, you want to play, football, <laughs> let's let's start our own league. Like, let's let's yeah. do that. Now I know that's easier said than done, but I don't even know that it's as difficult as people make it out to be. Especially if you talk about black men and women that have those types of resources, it's really just an issue of the will. You know, I mean, the will to do. I, I, I think about this all the time, right? And I, um, w- w- but more in terms of the NBA, I'm, I'm a bigger NBA fan than the NFL fan. Not that I right. wasn't an NFL fan. I've actually written a book on sports before. So mm-hmm. go get that sportsthebook.com. But anyway, um, but this, at the same time, I, I mean, I, I, Ice Cube is actually doing it, right? I, if, if you mm-hmm. get the best players in the NBA and you get an arena, like you could – I mean, artists do it. They tour. People go see you play. Like so, it, it, right. it's, yep. that that to me is 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 probably easier to do than the infrastructure built in the NFL. But at the end of the day, I, I, to me, what was interesting about that whole debate was just like um the, the, the sickle fonts on both sides who are like they they're just arguing regardless of what the facts are. They're not even arguing facts. They're arguing that whole cult of person that that that, that personality to love. Yeah, it yeah. don't like facts don't matter, and that's on both sides. Which is also interesting to me now. You have two, because I, you know, I spend time on Twitter too, in 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 Black Twitter, which is a powerful thing. But now all they're doing is fighting with each other, the Cap side and the Jay Z side, and no one's talking about the NFL anymore. I found I found that interesting. And I um, think the environment right now, the environment right now, but it, it lends itself toward like us. We're supposed to like you know stay as far away from critique as possible. Like it's like like as if critique won't help. Like like if I'm if you're building something, like you need people. To provide, you know, um, to provide constructive critique. Now, yeah, constructive, not destructive, not just like, nah, I don't mm-hmm. like you, so whatever you're doing, I don't care. Like, you know, but you know, you want to welcome that because, like, if I'm building something, I want people that I respect. Or, I mean, even if I don't really respect you, but you know, you might have an idea, you might think of something that I didn't think of. You yeah, know, but yeah. I think the environment lets you're not even supposed to say nothing. You know what I mean? And that, and that, and that is the environment. The environment is like, if I, if, I, if I admire you or I'm a fan of your work, I have to agree with everything you do. Um, yeah. Which is funny to me. Like, you know, and, and, and Trump, the Trump fans take that to the extreme, right? Like, <laughs> he could he do or say anything, but the fact is, like, if you're my... It's, it's almost like... Um, it's like watching... Life is becoming like wrestling. Like, if you like Yo, somebody... It's crazy. <laughs> if you like somebody, <laughs> nothing else matters. That's your guy. Then, then you slim Charles it all the way, right? Like, it doesn't right. matter what they do, what they say. I'm riding for my guy. That's that's an interesting, like, thing um, in the world in general. But in our community, it's kind of crazy because uh, yeah. our celebrity worship's on another level. But um, also, can I, can talking about... Something? Can I yeah, say yeah, great. yeah, absolutely. You brought up, um, so I, I don't know, this is, this is not, I guess this is not a critique. Maybe I thought it might have been, but it's not even a critique. Um, you brought up Ice Cube and his league. So it's, I guess it's something I've been thinking about for a while in terms of how do we define um, actual black businesses. And mm-hmm. what I've been thinking about is this concept of um, vertical integration mm-hmm. and seeing how, because, you know, a lot. So we, we'll start, um, you know, a black business. Yes. But I think the goal should be like it should be like all black everything, you know, all the yeah. way. So, so, so for example, like so if Ice Cube has the three on three 
uh, or the big three league. Mm-hmm. We should own the stadium. Um, there shouldn't be no state farm insurance advertising. It should be a black owned insurance car insurance company advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, all the food supplies, the concessions, everything is black. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I think that should be the goal. And I think I want us to start having those conversations about, I mean, that's something I, something I did learn from at Morgan and my, um, you know, my, my business training um, about the concept of vertical integration and how yeah. some companies, they just, you know, from manufacturing to the wholesale to the retail, like we got all that. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And all that. Like, so when they're doing their like make or buy decisions, like they don't buy nothing, they make it. Like everything is coming from them. And I think that as a community, I think that's something, I think that's something we have to aspire to. Like, even like, even with the sister, um, you know, in North Philly with Country Cooking, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I mean, I, appreci- I appreciate her having the business. Um, I have some challenges with it, but that's not relevant right now. But what is relevant is, I think like for sisters like her and for whoever has a business, like even if you got a restaurant, like where's your chicken coming from? The chicken need to come from somebody black. Where's your styrofoam containers coming from? Yeah. You need to come from somebody black. Where's your oven in the back? Where'd that come from? Where your, where your, uh, your salt and pepper shakers? It's your, funny. Uh, everything. That, but, like, it's interesting you say that, right? Because supplies that you use to clean the bathroom or to, to mop up at night, that need to come from somebody black. Like yeah, every yeah. single thing um, that, you know, we're doing, every single piece that goes into that business existing and then thriving should come from somebody black. And I know that that's something that I think that's, that's a mentality first that we have to implant within our young people so that they'll be like, yeah, we need to do that. Cause then, cause then it's like, cause then what happens is it's like, Oh, like young boy, we really got work for you now. So now yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, I feel like I'm talking oh, to Carl. I feel like I'm talking to Carl tone right now. Cause that's like uh, something he talks about, but yeah, it's I, like, so now, so now math matters now. So now it's like, Oh, I care about learning how to do math because I know that I'm trying to build something that's going to support, you know, the, the overall community. And I'm not, yeah. but like, you know, the, 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 I mean, that, that would take, it's going to take us a time to get there because we don't control any natural resources. Like, yeah. Um, not let alone natural resources, like re- a lot of resources in general. Um, I mean, that's when the fight's going to start. I mean, to be quite honest, I mean, that, that is when the fight's going to start. Cause if you're talking about, you know, I mean, you got to, you know, we talking about, well, I want I want the, I want the, I want to buy salmon from a black person. I want to buy chicken from a black person. I want collard greens to come from a black person. I want all, all my best foods, you know, that means we got to own the farms. And if we own the farms, it means we own the land. Mm-hmm. And again, back to what Malcolm was talking about, you know, revolutions are about land. We talk about that yes. the ballad of the bullet revolution yes. about, about land, and because uh, once you got the land, and you you got everything's gonna grow from the land. Yes, so, and, I mean, these, and, these and, are the serious conversations we gotta have. Yo, and and you know what's crazy about that is um, it's like I said, it's gonna take a time to get there, and and I don't even know Cube's ownership percentage of that league or what have you. I was more talking about the uh the infrastructure in terms of just renting arenas and all that, but you but you're correct in terms of um. Like you said, getting those resources because some of those resources are available from our people right now, and we still don't support them. Whether we're talking about um, cleaning products, uh, paper towels, those things we already do make, but a lot of us don't support it. Um, so that that is going to be a challenge. And you're right; that's also going to be a, a huge fighting point when we start to pull away that way and and, and using all of our own things. Right? It's okay. It's okay for us to make a certain level of income if, we're, if they're still eating with us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, as soon as you start yeah. cutting off, as soon as you start cutting off they, they money, then, you know, they integrated everything but the money. They always talk about integration. They integrated everything but the resources and the money. 
Well, that's when they start. That's when they start changing laws, right? And 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 that's where like um one of my favorite books comes into play. The whole idea of powernomics, right? Um, is 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 using the capital that we get to buy the influence. Um, yeah. It's something else we mentioned. So we're talking about like you know books or what have you. That let off. I mean, I, I knew this was going to be a long conversation because brother, I kill. Like we could go for days talking to him. But <laughs> I, but but the thing is though. Kwame Ture is interesting too, right? I always go back and you ever watch that video when he's walking with like uh, Martin, and like mm-hmm. he's giving he's giving his opinion and Martin's giving his opinion. Like to me, that's also one of the most courageous moments I saw. Like, because when you read about how Dr. King is revered, and you got this young guy who's like, com- who's going a completely different direction, and he's like sitting in front of him, and, and, and but he's still being like respectful, and like just disagreeing right. with him on camera. To me, that was like one of the most illest things I think I've ever seen. Like. I'm like, yo, this dude that was his Yeah, but he was still yeah, like, that, but, he was, was but he was showing him respect, but like completely like disagreeing with him at the same time. I said, that's like, to me, that was like ill. I said, yo, he's ill. Because it was partly, it was partly my study of Kwame Ture that opened my eyes up to what I, what I call the real king, or at least king toward the end of his life. Like the king that king became when the man's, okay, we got to kill him. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. when they start, when they start talking about, when he starts talking about money, when he starts talking about yeah. economics, they opened his head up. I mean, they yeah. opened, you know what I mean? He had to go. Yeah. Simply because when you, and this is something that me and Jim talked about privately, but I, I'll put it on our, on, our, on our podcast, but when you have that kind of sphere of influence that he had over people, it doesn't really mean anything unless you start talking about the economic empowerment of those people, mm-hmm. right? So as long as he was talking about social change, he was fine. Yeah. As soon as he started talking about economic change, he had to get out of here. Yeah. Because now when you start talking about empowering hundreds of thousands of millions and millions of people, that right there makes you dangerous because you, then our government loses control of those people because they don't control those people's time anymore. Because the more right. resources you have, the less control they have of your time. Yeah. Speaking of that, I'm glad you brought that up because I know we, we had conversations about the value of time before. And lo and behold, I guess it's, it's like, what's that, what do they call it? Synchronicity or whatever. I was yep. tutoring, a, tutoring a young sister tonight, and um, she had a she had a workbook she was going she had a workbook she had to complete for the summertime um, in order to get her to help get ready for like the seventh grade. So it was a it was a particular problem that we went over, and it tied into that concept. And I'm gonna read the problem to you, and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about like the type of conversation we had. So the problem was it was number four on this particular page. And we were doing a doing an exercise with like the coordinate plane and the different grid and the points. We, but we were talking about sat. So it was cool before I even get to this question because it was cool because then I was like, it's like you know when, you, when a lot of times when we teach math, math is real abstract because it's just you know equations, x's and y's and numbers, and with no real real life application. But what has to happen is it has to be in order for it to be effective, it's got to be a narrative attached to it where you really tell a story about like, okay, like what's the value of these numbers? So we ended up having this conversation about uh, salary versus uh, hourly employees. We start talking about what time, what overtime means, how to calculate that. How do you calculate time and a half? How do you calculate double time? Then when does that happen? Or like, you know, or as, a, as an employee, you're an hourly employee and then a supervisor comes to you and says, well, you know what, we're thinking of promoting you and then you're going to be salary. And then I was telling the sister, I was like, listen, you got to know how to do the mathematics because a lot of times you might end up making less money, but they'll, they'll gas you up and tell you like, you know, you'll get more credit, more prestige, 
more credibility. You'll get a, you get to wear a uniform, a different color uniform shirt. You'll have. You know, <laughs> but they ain't giving you no more money. They give you everything but money. And you might make less money, actually, like, you know, depending yeah. on how the numbers work out. Um, and then, you know, same thing with like sales jobs, sales jobs versus, you know, some sales, some, sometimes you're in a sales position where it's like the sky's the limit or, you know, you could be the salary manager, you know what I'm saying? So it was cool because, you know, and she's sitting there like, she like, you know, kind of in awe, like I'm, I'm putting on, I'm telling, I'm, I can tell she's never had this conversation before. And I think like, that's the, that's the power of mathematics because mathematics kind of puts all that into perspective. And then you kind of just let the young people know, like, listen, like, if you don't know, like, we, we also use it as a way to, like, explain how America operates. America is set up, you know, it's, you know, it's a bunch of robbers and thieves. And somebody will try to outsmart you or rob you or exploit you in some kind of way at every corner. And if you can't protect yourself against that, then they're going to get you. And the thing is, they'll smile in your face while they're doing it. And if you don't know no better, because you can't do the calculations, you can't defend yourself against it. You know what I'm saying? So we was talking about all that. But then the, the number four, this is what I want to get to. Number four from the worksheet said, how many hours, because the, the, the brother in the, in the, in the pro program problem, his name was Marshall, right? So it said, how many hours will Marshall have to work if he is saving to buy a $300 game system, right? Now, we already calculated that. Um, from number one, we had to calculate how much his hourly wage was. It was $7.50. So now, boom, this opens the door. Now we can have a conversation about your point, which is Tom. Like, so now it's not, because money is real abstract. Like money, like what does what $300 even mean? What does $1,000 even mean? Like, what does that mean? But what's not abstract is how many hours of my life that I have to spend to do that, that I cannot get back. Mm -hmm. I can't get that them hours back. You can get robbed and go, go make the money again, get the money back. But Tom, in your life, you can't get that back. And you're making a sacrifice because you could have spent that time doing anything. You could have spent it with family, could have spent it with friends. You could have spent it sleeping. You could have spent it, you know, doing, doing a lot of stuff. You could have spent it. Yeah, whatever you want, basically, yeah. But a problem like, a math problem like that puts it in perspective and you start to like have these conversations with the youth. It's like, you know, because they might, they might want to pay a $900 Balenciagas for the prom or whatever. And you say, their mom and dad might say, well, shit, you want them? Go get a job and go save up for them. And I mean, it's, it, we're dealing with, you know, dialectical materialism, like everything is good and bad at the same time. So on the one hand, it's like, okay, I respect your grind. I respect your quote unquote hustle that you were able to, you know, secure employment and you work, went to work, you were consistent, you were responsible and you saved the $900 for a pair of shoes. But then we got to also think about, well, how many hours of your life did you give away for $900 for $900? So the, the cost of the shoe is not just the $900. The cost of the shoe is hours of your life and minutes of your life that you cannot get back. And then we had, you had to ask yourself, like, was that worth it? Yeah. And I think that, and that's the thing about like, you know, luxury items or what have you is because when we look at them, when we're not looking at a price tag, we're looking at the time it takes to get that. Right. <laughs> and Corey always often talk, and by the way, for those out there, we also wrote the book on your time and space written by myself and Corey. And, Co and Corey goes into the detail. I get a copy of that. I got you. I got you. I got you. Uh, Cor Corey goes into detail. And one of the things he says that I find interesting because he writes the part about time. I write about space. But 
is how we all don't live the same 24 hours, right? Mm. So if you have resources, your 24 hours looks different than someone who doesn't have resources. Right. And, right. and when we look at things that are luxury, so uh, if, you're, if you take yourself back to being a teenager, you see someone with the new Jordans and the new Balenciagas, like what you're looking at is like how much time it takes to get that. Like that's because that's the only thing that's valuable is our time, right? right? Our time has so much value to it that we're like, yo, if you're able to get this, that, and the third, like you, you, you have more time than me. Yeah, and what people would do is draw a level of respect uh, based on the amount of time it takes to buy something, right? Because right. so, that's what, what price tells you. Price says, if I give you a $100,000 price tag and you can afford that, that means that you were so efficient with your time that you were able to afford something that costs $100,000. And Listen. if I can't afford it, then it, it, and, and people will base their so, – what I talk about in the book that you, you know, that you just put up is if I call you a janitor or if I call you a CEO, right? People will base how they talk to you based on the time that it takes to become either one of those things, right? Yeah. People yeah. will say it didn't take a lot of time to become a janitor, but it took him forever to become a CEO, not knowing whether or not that man got, you know, put in that position as a CEO without having to do anything to get that right. position. From and that it took position. me more time to get the, that job as a janitor. Right. And it doesn't say how well either one of those people do their job. And it doesn't say how well either one of those people will treat you. Well, that goes back to the overall theme of marketing, right? So marketing is about, it, it, it kind of like tells us what the value, right? So one of the things, and here's a little tip for people out there, like, so everyone knows I'm in the real estate game, right? So one of the things I learned to do is if I'm applying for a loan at a bank or something um, to do any sort of investment or development, I started including a resume, right? which they don't even ask for. I just add it. Like, so that sometimes you could add a bio and I add a resume and put that I have a master's degree in real estate. Right. Mm. And that actually helps. And I've had like lenders tell me like, Oh, you have that. that because what they're looking at is the time it took me to get that. Our degrees are a measurement of time. That's look, all they are. When you look at someone who's having a bachelor's degree or, or even you could do a PhD or, or, you know, you, you put a level of respect based upon the time you think it took them to get that. Right. Which is why some people get upset at like I know people who hate people with like honorary degrees. They be like, he got an honorary degree because <laughs> they, they didn't put the time behind. Because yeah, they feel like they didn't put that time in, right? You know what I mean? Because you know, so they're not even mad at the degree. They don't care about the degree. They're not mad at the person for the degree. They mad at that they put the time in, and that other person didn't have to put any time into it. Yeah, yeah, but that's what it all boils down. All boils down to time, man. Man, listen, we could go on forever, man. We gotta, we gotta come to a close soon, man. But um, any other books that you want to mention before we get out of here? Because you mentioned some powerful books, that Kwame Ture book and uh, Charles Hamilton. I actually haven't read that. I gotta get on that. Um, let me recommend. Uh, this brother was one of the founders of ASCAC, the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations. Jacob, raise Carruth. it up. We, we can't see the. Uh, oh, there we go. Though. There we go. Intellectual warfare. Yeah, okay. Intellectual warfare. Mm, interesting. Jacob Carruthers, and he was a he was a political scientist and a historian, and as I said, one of the founders of ASCAC. ASCAC was so it was like five five people that founded it. It was him. It was um, Asa Hilliard, who wrote extensively on um, African centered education. Um, then you had John Henry Clark, one of my other intellectual heroes. Uh, Doctor Ben, you know what I mean. Um, who else was one of the, Who else was one of the founders? Uh, a sister out uh, of. Ah, uh, Nzinga, Nzinga, uh, Radabishi Haru was one of the one of the founding members. Um, if it was anybody else, forgive me. Uh, their name escapes me right now. But um, 
yeah, intellectual warfare. It's a, it's a compilation of essays where he talks about, and this is why, I like, um, you know, I, I, you know, again, in terms of like looking at like neo-colonialism and like it's his, in a historical context, he talks about the intellectual, like Africans and Europeans, but he also talks about he's got a section in here called the uh, the intellectual civil war. So where he's talking about like you know you know between between black people because we got we got different ideas, um, and some of us have different goals. See, that's, mm-hmm. that's the thing. It's like sometimes we have the same goal, but we just have different ways of getting at it, like Malcolm said in the Battle of the Bullet. You know what I mean? But sometimes mm-hmm. we don't even really have the same goals. Cause, but they try to make it seem like we got the same goals. We just, you know, we, we can go about it in different ways. I'm like, if we got the same goal and you think this way of work and I think that way, well, you're going to work this side of the street, I'm going to work this side of the street. That's cool. I'm with that. But if you're sitting up here, like, I, I use this analogy. Like, if I'm trying to dig a ditch, right, and every time I shovel and I move and I move some dirt out of the ditch into a pile, <coughs> and you right behind me taking dirt and throwing it back in the ditch, then we don't have the same goal. You trying to fill the hole back up. I'm trying to dig a ditch. It's crazy you said that. I had this, say, I had this conversation on Sunday, Corey. We sitting there talking. When we were talking, we actually were talking about the, uh, it was a bunch of us talking about the uh, Jay-Z cap thing. And I, and, I made that same point. I was like, yo, I feel like if we're working towards the same common goal, even if we fundamentally disagree, yeah. as long as we're both moving forward. It's funny you say that. It's almost verbatim. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's almost verbatim. I might think that your method and strategy is, is ridiculous. But mm-hmm. if I'm like, you know what? I think I, he, wants, he, wants, he wants the same thing. Uh, I don't know how it's going to work that way. You know <laughs> what I mean? I might not be able to. So you, you know, in, in terms of working side by side with you, but I'm going to leave you alone because I don't see that what you're doing is going against or is a detriment to what I'm over here doing. You know, yeah, but once, yeah. I, once I see that, then it's like we're not on the same page. We're not going in the same direction. And I think, again, that comes from the lack of the lack of study because I think people will get caught up in, again, the, the call to personality and the but, emotion. And it's like I like the person. I, I actually used to so be I want to give them the benefit things. of the doubt. I used to actually be one of that comes through maturity, right? Because um, you know, I always mentioned that like I'm a student of Dr. Claude Anderson. So I remember the first time I read Powernomics and, and how it changed me. And that became like, you know, my motive, like that was like the blueprint of what I want to do. And people mm-hmm. who didn't agree, I would get in these heated debates with people. But then as I got as I, you know, got older and matured, and like you said, did more reading, and you start to understand that if we have the same goal, like I may disagree with you a hundred percent. But I can't be mad at you as long as I feel like you're working for the betterment of our people. Like, how can I be upset at that, right? When there's other people who look like me who aren't working for the betterment who of our doing, people. Who, who are doing nothing or are or, 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 or just a plain old anchor. Yeah. Like, just yeah. an anchor. So I get people all, about, all the time who criticize, like, some, like, our brothers. This brother sits out here doing real work in the streets, and I see people criticize, and I'm like, well, what are you doing? Well, nothing. <laughs> First you know, I mean, yeah, first we, question. What are we talking about then? Like, you're not doing anything at if all. Right? If they're doing something and you're not doing anything, first, then your opinion is meaningless. There you go. And, and it also, the last thing I want to bring up, you, you brought up, you said the name Nzinga, right? Which is interesting because I just read um, The Destruction of the Black Civilization by uh, Chancellor Williams. Chancellor Williams, yeah. Yeah, and, and that was. With Dr. Clark. That's one of the. the, the I, he has several stories in that book about uh, Queen and Zynga. And that was my, like, that's the first time I read some of those stories. And I'm like, wow, I, it's, it's almost like hidden history. <laughs> since you, and since you bring that up, let me, uh, you just, you just triggered me just now. Um, it's an essay I've been meaning. Uh, it's an essay I'm going to write that I have not written yet. 
Um, it's about my personal feelings about Portugal. Portugal as a nation. I don't fuck with Portugal. Like, fuck Portugal. And there's a historical <laughs> reason for that. <laughs> I ain't um, mad so you bring up Nzinga, Nzinga, Queen Nzinga, down in uh, what's now was Angola. Uh, mm -hmm. The Portuguese attempted to colonize, and she fought, you know, tooth and nail for years against the Portuguese. Uh, but later, um, you mentioned you mentioned honorary degrees. So my man, uh, Emil Carl Cabral, who was a revolutionary leader in, of PAIGC, and wow, that's where he was from. He was educated. He understood about the land too. So to him understanding the land. He went to Portugal because Guinea-Bissau um, and the Cape Verde Islands was a Portuguese colony. So he ended up going and getting educated in Portugal, got his agricultural engineering degree, came back to the land, came back, to, came back home. Um, in 72, Lincoln gave him an honorary degree. That's the reason I went to Lincoln for my, for my, uh, my master's. Okay. A book came in the mail. I was, it was time for me to make my decision. A book came in the mail, uh, you know, of his, like, either it was either a biography or it was a book of his speeches. But anyway, there's a picture in it of him accepting his degree in, back in 72. But anyway, um, I, well, I, the reason I say fuck Portugal, besides the fact that they're imperialists and they colonized our people and brutalized our people for hundreds of years, is that um, when they assassinated Cabral, they finally assassinated him in 73. Um, it was a sister that's named by Tatina Silla. Tatina Silla also was part of PAIGC, also a soldier. Um, 10 days later, his, um, his funeral was to take place. He got, he got assassinated in January. 10 days later, his funeral was to take place. They catch her on the way to the funeral and kill her. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just like, so when I read that, I just was like, man, like that, you know, I try, mo most of the time I remain objective about things, but that, that affected me emotionally because I'm like, damn, like she can't even, y'all didn't even let her go pay her respects at this man's funeral. He was their lead, she, he was their leader. You know what I'm saying? This sister was, you know, fighting, you know, you know, side by side with him. You know what I mean? And she's on her way to the funeral and y'all take her out. You know what I mean? Y'all had to know she was going to the funeral too. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, that's why I'd be like, fuck Portugal. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I can't, I can't wait so, to read that. And it's funny you mentioned Cabral. Um, first time I heard of Cabral, speaking of hip hop, was uh, Dead Press. Okay. Uh, yep. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, music is the introduction to a lot of it, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it, those those kind of artists, right? So, um, um, man, it's a lot of information in this episode, man. So, brother, kill, man. Um, before we get out of here, how can people that uh want to follow your work and see what you're doing uh, with all this math? How can they get in touch with you? All right. So, the all the all this math website is www.allthismath.com. All this math is one word: a l l t h i s m a t h. So allthismath.com, um, you can see some of the things that, that we're doing and some of the things that we have planned. Um, me, and, me and my wife, um, again, trying to trying to do the, you know, uh, the Malcolm X, Betty Shabazz thing, trying to do the uh, <laughs> Garvey, uh, Amy Jacques Garvey. Uh, well, actually, both his wives. He had two wives. Both was named Amy. Amy Ashwood first and then Amy Jacques Garvey. Um, Robert F. Williams and, um, damn, I, I can't remember Robert F. Williams' wife's name. But, um, uh What's her name? I, anyway, it, it escapes me. But anyway, trying trying to do the uh, you know, show, you know, the black the, the strong black family thing. So we, you know, we working on the business together. She has a certain skill set that I don't have in terms of like marketing and uh, create a little like creativity and you know planning and organizing. Mm -hmm. So I kind of I try to play to my strengths and let her play to hers. Um, so yeah, allthismath.com. 
And I, you can find me on uh, Instagram, um, Akil, A-K-I-L underscore Latif, L-A-T-E-E-F. Um, also Twitter, same, same handle, Akil underscore Latif. And on Facebook, I use my government name, Akil Parker. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I'll make sure to put the links to all that in the description of this on the, uh, the podcast as well as the webcast, man. But we just want to say thank you for your time, man. And man, we enjoyed this conversation. We could have did, you, you know how it is. Me and I kill getting a conversation sometimes. I'm like, man, we got to stop because we'll be here all day. Like, um, but, but you know, you, you, listen, man, you, 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 thanks for having me. I appreciate your work, brother. And, and, and also, I also want to say this before we get out of here, like in terms of social media, I love your posts. Like I, I don't, I don't comment on a lot of them because you, you, be, y'all people like, you know, some of the, your flat earth friends and all that. Like, I, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't, I can't get in. I, I don't want to engage in that. But, but, but I, I love your posts because, like, you know, sometimes I, it'll give me a different perspective on things, right? So you have some of the most engaging commentary, um, and, and I learn a lot. You know what I mean? I learn a lot through that. So you, you actually teach. You're using social media to teach. I try, yeah, to, I, I, try, I try to set it up. I try to set the page up kind of like a classroom, like, because, like, sometimes I just put out questions, and I'm like, I want to see, I, like, I don't know a lot about this, but I know somebody, like, I got almost, I, if I got almost 5,000 friends, like, somebody know about this. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So Somebody's yeah. going to be able to contribute some information. So I like this. I just want to give you props on that, because you're using it the right way, because, you know, people, you, like, I talk, I talk all the time, people use social media for all kinds of stuff. I see people that make money on social media. I see people that do nothing but, like, you know, look at buns on social media, but you're, you're using it to teach your people, so I just want to, you know, Tell you, thank you. I for mean, that. I mean, and truth be told, I, I need to start making some money on it. You know what I mean? Absolutely, man. Absolutely, but listen, man, we appreciate it, man. Um, want to say thank you to our uh, listeners out there. We want to say, as we always do, it's not about how much money you make; it's about how much you keep. Game right. elevates, man, and we'll and we'll see you guys next time. All right, peace. All right, peace.